Profiles and Strategy, a podcast series of talks by the U.S. Naval War College Strategy and Policy Department. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views of the Naval War College or the United States. All right. Good morning and welcome, everyone, to the Strategy and Policy Talk on the American Revolution for this week. This is episode three. And uh, joining us today, we have um, our, uh, our lecturers for this week, Dr. George Satterfield, uh, professor in the Strategy and Policy Department, um, enthusiast on all things irregular warfare and European affairs. Welcome, George. Thank you for being here. Good morning. Uh, Dr. John Maurer, our, uh, our longest serving S&P professor. And uh, last but certainly not least, Dr. Mark Genest, political scientist and uh, enthusiast on all things regular warfare and insurgency. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. <laughs> all right. So um, there, was a, there was a number of themes that were touched on in, in all of your lectures this week. Um, but the thing I thought we would start out with was, um, you know, the, the looking at the red team strategy, what Britain could have done to prevent this uh, this rebellion, and um, Mark, you mentioned it a lot in in your lecture about the Adams boys were these implacable revolutionaries. Do you think anything could have been done to by by the British if you were you know if we were to turn the map around to um, to stave this thing off in the in the uh, years just after the Seven Years' War? Uh, yeah, I actually think there's a lot they could have done. Uh, in fact, Sam Adams was most worried that the British would try to formulate some kind of a political resolution to undercut the uh, rebellion at its earliest stages. Uh, and I've said many times that, that if the uh, if the Crown had said, hey, look, send us 13 representatives uh, to the Parliament, which would have made up in a minuscule uh, percentage of uh, the representatives in Parliament, uh, that they would have had taxation with representation. Uh, and then that would have completely undercut uh, Adam's strategy uh, and the radical strategy uh, to try to convince Americans to uh, to leave the uh, the empire. And remember, the vast majority of Americans wanted greater freedom within the empire. Uh, they always wanted to remain a part of the empire uh, until the war really began in earnest. Uh, and again, you still had that one third, one third, one third cut. So I think the British saw a rebellion and out of pride and anger, uh, responded uh, unnecessarily uh, in a military fashion and against something that should have been resolved politically. Uh, there's a whole series of things that the Brits could have done. Uh, and instead, they do what most empires and great empires do, uh, is they resort to military force because that's the central element of their power. Mm -hmm. Okay. George, do you, have a, do you have a sense on that? You know, I'm I'm more ambivalent. I, I I'm not sure um, that there was a lot that the Parliament could have done differently. Um, they were they, they had their hands tied in some ways. Um, I, I believe uh, that there was a discussion in Parliament um, about uh, having the American colonies have agents represent them. Um, and I, I, it was a small number. There was it wasn't like one per colony. Um, but that was more of a symbolic, um, I think, representation um, that was considered. But there was no official 
um, body set up to, to uh, inquire further about how it might be done. Um, so it was just sort of mentioned in pa- My understanding is most members of parliament believe that that uh, British subjects were were virtually represented by all of the mem- by all of the individual members in the Parliament, and that 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 included people living in England, it included people living in Wales, and and so it also included people living in in the colonies. Um, to really address that issue might have uh, caused a political avalanche that I'm not sure uh, the 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 existing. Uh, members of parliament wanted to have to deal with. So uh, the idea is, a, 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 you know, a nice one, but I, I don't know if it was politically feasible at the time. Uh, where I do think they could have maybe done something, uh, and this falls in line with the criticism of some of the more conservative members of the parliament, was just not tax the Americans. I, I think they, they, they might have looked at some other uh, fiscal alternatives to taxing them directly, uh, which was something that they had never experienced before. And, uh, you know, they might have um, looked out of their, looked for other means. Um, I, I know the British people were already uh, taxed heavily, but they might have, there might have been some other way to raise the revenue to uh, pay for the cost of defending the colonies. Okay. Interesting. John, we'll, uh, we'll go to you for a response. Some wars are practically inevitable. This war is not at all inevitable. This is a war that could have been avoided. Uh, Already the Americans are represented in London. Um, Ben Franklin was over there as a lobbyist and represented American views. So uh, there were ways to avoid this. And Franklin was giving good advice to the British government about how to avoid a rebellion in uh, in the colonies. And so, as George said, there are ways of of avoiding this just by not doing direct taxation. Uh, The colonies in this period of time are experiencing uh, incredible population growth, a doubling of population in one generation. And when you have such dramatic demographic increase in population, you always have accompanying political turmoil. And so this is a particularly acute time of where uh, Britain has to be careful. And they seem to be doing everything they can to alienate the colonists by trying to impose more direct rule on the colonists. And so a more prudent restraint approach to the colonies, uh, moving toward what later became known as dominion status, which is that uh, these dominions have a great deal of self-government but their foreign policy and defense policy is controlled from London, but there's no real burden put on them to pony up men or, or uh, money until wartime. So there are things that Britain could have done if they'd been more farsighted and visionary uh, about how to avoid this, this war. And as Mark said, by responding in a heavy-handed way, the way they did that all that did was galvanize uh, American resistance because a word like liberty is an abstract concept. It's hard to know what liberty means, but when you have an army imposed upon you, quartered on you, uh, using violence against you, uh, against your neighbors, all of a sudden you know what liberty means. 
uh, it's no longer abstract, it's personal. So Britain is taking steps that's bound to exacerbate things here. And as Mark said, there was, there's a political solutions to this to avoid the rebellion. And as George highlighted, there are, there are some ways that creative thinking on the part of the British would have avoided this war. Okay, Mark, we'll go to you for a response. Well, I hate to do this, but I strongly agree with George and John. <laughs> I mean, I think they make really good points. Uh, the feasibility of granting the, the colonies 13 representatives uh, was certainly problematic in the parliament and the king. Uh, so that, like John said, they had to be, they had to be more foresighted. Uh, and again, as John said, uh, you know, the concept of the Commonwealth will come much later. Uh, but as we've seen, I mean, Canada is still a part of it, and so are other member uh, colonies. Uh, so maybe this is looking back saying we expected more from the Brits. Uh, but I think this is a great example of the inability of great empires to be politically flexible and imaginative because they're at the pinnacle of power. I mean, this, at this point, after the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War, uh, it's, it's really a British unipolar moment. Um, and as a result, the, the attempt to be more creative literally dissipates because it's like, hey, I have all the power now. Shut up and listen to me. We just uh, and I think that leads eventually to the decline. Right. Yeah. If, if they just beat their major rival, France, they've just gained all these overseas colonies. Um, you know, what would be the compunction for them to say, well, let's, you know, take all these different representatives and send them into parliament, you know, representatives from India, from, uh, you know, Australia. And that's a great lesson to the United States right now, contemporary. You know, we're still the hegemonic power, even though there's a rising China. Um, are we being creative enough and looking for alternative um, options to resolve issues that are important to our national security? Um, and I think the last 20 years demonstrates that we haven't been. Well, just to pull on that thread just a little bit, so we're talking about creative thinking. Let's take the counterfactual approach. If Britain had been creative and said, hey, yes, okay, you know, we'll have more representation, right? You made it sound in your lecture, Mark, that the Adams boys were simply these implacable uh, revolutionaries that were going to gain independence from, from Britain regardless. Well, Sam was. John was less so. Do you, so do you think if, if this representation thing had been even even posited, do you think they would have stopped? Well, I know from reading the letters of Sam Adams and, and the early correspondence that that's what Sam was particularly concerned with. Um, and he goes through periods in the 1760s and early 70s where he gets depressed, where he thinks his radical solutions to the problem are less popular than he had hoped it would be. Um, so he had to really gin up support. And as John said earlier, the British were the were a cooperative adversary uh, by, you know, clamping down, by looking more toward the military instrument that played into the hands of Sam Adams and the Sons of Liberty. Uh, so unless you have that cooperative uh, interaction with an adversary that does exactly what you want them to do, uh, then it's going to be very difficult to rally the forces to go against Great Britain. Because as I said, many mem Americans simply wanted to retain their liberty uh, within the empire. Uh, and it took British aggression to force the majority of Americans over to Sam's side. Interesting. Okay, George, what, what do you think, even if uh, British had done some more creative solutions, does this rebellion still happen? <clears throat> well, there's so that I... 
Yeah, I, I'm I'm sort of of the opinion that eventually it would have. I, I think now I think what uh, is up to debate is maybe when. I think the British exasperated the situation by some major missteps. Um, one of the common uh, mistakes that uh, governments often make when they face a growing uh, insurgency or revolutionary problem is they'll crack down and then they'll back up. And that just uh, uh, just fuels the flames. And they did that with the Stamp Act, right? They, they impose it and then they rescind it, they repeal it. Uh, and then that just, uh, you know, makes it worse. And then they did the same thing with the Townsend duties, the Townsend Acts. Uh, they eventually rescind them and that just encourages the resistance movement. Um, but, you know, having said that, I, you know, there, there was a, an opportunity, I think, um, you know, for the British to uh, maybe uh, manage the situation. But eventually, I think the, the problem is the American colonies had, had self-governance for decades. Uh, they had their own assemblies. Um, I think three out of four American males um, were able to participate in voting. Um, so uh, in comparison to like one in four back in England. So there was a very strong democratic spirit uh, in the American colonies that had emerged over the course of the 18th century. And so you have these two different political cultures, although they had a common origin. The American political culture was really changing. And also the fact that a lot of Americans didn't, uh, weren't of English ancestry. We were, uh, by, as John pointed out, the population was growing. And so there were Germans and Irish and Scots. And, and so you have this, uh, you know, population that's, that's becoming different and it's becoming American. And so I, I think eventually there might have been uh, uh, some some kind of uh, rebellion against the mother countries. Interesting, John. We'll go, we'll go to you for the the last uh, uh, thought on this. Was there any off ramp for uh, for Britain to to save the American colonies? Well, yes. Uh, again, don't do the the things that they did do, as George said, that they impose and then back down. I mean, they fuel resistance, but then they show weakness. Uh, you know, as, as Mark said, too, that uh, you have some people who are rabble rousers, but you can isolate them because most people don't want to wage a war. Nobody wants to take part in a rebellion. Uh, so there are things that uh, that the crown could have done, which is just recognize that there's self-government here in these colonies, that they're becoming wealthy. Uh, they're developing well economically. Trade is increasing. Um, uh, what's not to like? <laughs> uh, again, don't try now to step in uh, and be uh, trying to put more control over this when the the secular trend lines are actually moving in a good direction for you. Um, so I, I I think that the British are short sighted here uh, in the way they behaved, and this is a, again a war I think could have been avoided, and in the long run. Whether there would have been a rebellion or not, there, there probably would have been some sort of rebellion. But uh, but again, uh, it, 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 again, by wise political management, uh, the Brits should have been able to keep control over these colonies. Mm -hmm. hey, hey, John, if I could just add to that, um, they had a perfect template. It's called the Wealth of Nations and Adam Smith. You know where he, where he was advocating look just exploit open markets and by then britain had a wonderful comparative advantage and industrialization 
over the colonies and over uh, their other uh, potential adversaries. So all they needed to do to grow was follow Adam Smith's template, which was published in 1776. It was there. The answers are right before the British, but they choose not to to, to uh, pay attention to them. Mm-hmm. So they in 1776, obviously we've got you know the Declaration of Independence. Uh, the British now have decided to send an invasion army or or a uh, we'll call it a large police action maybe uh, to get, to put down the rebellious colony. So at this point, can we say this is really poor execution, or what what should they have done differently to put down this rebellion now that they've committed to the use of force? And uh, well, Mark, since you uh, let us off there, we'll start with you on this one. Well, but I think John's already explained the, uh, they could have been used the velvet glove a little bit more. Um, but had they used force at the outset, um, I think the Battle of Long Island uh, is George Washington as, at his weakest uh, and um, least operationally wise by taking on the great uh, British Navy on Long Island. Uh, he just gets lucky with some fog uh, and putting some boats uh, at the right place at the right time to allow him to escape. But had the British truly enveloped him, and they should have, that was a huge operational mistake on the part of the Brits, uh, they could have defeated the Continental Army and either killed or captured uh, George Washington. And who knows uh, what would have happened after that. I mean, you're literally decapitating, you're hitting not just the leadership, uh, but in Clausewitzian fashion, you're defeating the army. Uh, so if you do that at the outset, uh, I think that changes the whole context. And as George pointed out, and, and John, that you know maybe this rebellion uh, would have happened at some time, but I think at that point, had the Brits used the Howe brothers' strategy of come down with an iron fist and then offer amnesty, uh, that that may have quelled the rebellion at least for that time. And then, so had they created an uh, amnesty and worked with some kind of a political solution, who knows? We may, you know, we may still be uh, British citizens and uh, have better accents, better TV, and need more dental care. <laughs> so, so George, it seems like at this point, 1776, you know, Britain has passed the point of no return. But is it is it poor strategy and poor execution? What happens in New York, or is what, what's your sense on that? I think it was a combination of those plus poor dental hygiene, probably. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, I no, I I think the the um, so. I mean, the British, one of the key British mistakes, I think, was evacuating Boston. And uh, that seems to be the view of uh, O'Shaughnessy, the, the, one of the, the historian who wrote The Men Who Lost America, right? And uh, it was because it was a sign of real weakness. And again, I, I think the signs of weakness like that from, a, from the government, you know, is just going to encourage the spread of, of a rebellion. Uh, which was, was and, and all up and down the, the Atlantic seaboard, uh, uh, governors who had been appointed by the crown were were uh, chased out of office, uh, and most of them went back to England. Some went to Canada. Um, legislatures were overturned. Uh, the uh, so that uh, patriots uh, dominated in them. Um, so. Uh, so you ended up with a situation after the British left Boston 
uh, almost like a civil war where where geography now starts to to make its impact and and so you have you know you know the Atlantic separating these two sides. Um, I, I think that for the British then to return to New York City um, made some sense. New York City was more more uh, had more people. It was more populous. It was the economy there. It was a larger uh, hub of economic activity. Uh, on the other hand, um, to go back to Boston, I think would add real symbolic value. You know, to come back in force and and reassert the authority of the crown. So there were options um, that they might have looked at. Um, I think, uh, uh, the, you know, the idea of coming back to New York City was predicated on the idea that they could seize control of the Hudson River Valley and that they would isolate all of the New England colonies and eventually strangle the the merchants and the the, the who are leading the the rabble there. Uh, into to some economic submission and bring them back under the authority of the parliament. So that made some sense, I suppose. Um, but I think they lost a, a lot of um, a lot of their reputation by by leaving Boston. Interesting, John. What's your what's your sense on the on this one? Well, a, a, after the Battle of Bunker Hill, the British did a major reassessment and they realize they have a major war on their hands and so in the assessment that they did to crush this rebellion they came to the conclusion that they needed to pulse forward an overwhelming force uh, which for them was 50,000 boots on the ground between Canada and the 13 colonies uh, and that this rebellion would take four years to crush uh, so 50,000 forces forward deployed four years to, to, to win this war. And the big if, they believed that they could crush this rebellion so long as France stays out of the war. So I think that's a, a reasonable net assessment on the part of the British, that if the French stay out and the British can pulse forward 50,000 some troops between Canada and the 13 colonies, they will eventually crush this rebellion. Now, there also has to be, as Mark said, some sort of political settlement to go along with it. Uh, that after winning big victories, you better come with a generous peace offer. And uh, the British actually do this in the winter of 1777-78, the so-called Carlisle mission, in which they say, hey, uh, uh, as long as you don't declare independence, everything's everything's negotiable and will cave on everything now of course they only go along with this generous peace offer after they've been defeated at saratoga that's a long time to come with a generous peace offer because as george said earlier you're capitulating you look like weakness what you have to do is hit them hard like around new york or i like uh, george's counterfactual go back with your big army to boston and crack skulls there uh, and after you've done that, then offer, after victories, you then offer a generous peace. So the British have opportunities here, I believe, to crush this rebellion. Uh, one other factor has to go along with this, which is that your British forces on the ground have to be kept away from the population on a day-to-day -day basis. They're there to win battles. They will not win hearts and minds by being quartered on the American population. Again, the British Army, by being quartered on the population, ends up being the best recruiting tool for the Patriot cause. 
when you have a British army come to town, you all of a sudden know what liberty means. Again, it becomes deeply personal. So the British have to operate in a different way as well, be conscious of how their army can end up alienating the American population. But again, I think the British, after Breed's Hill, Bunker Hill, ha have a good assessment of what it's going to take to do, keep France out four years. But what's missing, as Mark said, is this generous peace offer side after winning victories. And boy, if you can destroy Washington's army, capture Washington, annihilate him, uh, that takes away the conventional force that the Americans have. That would have been a major blow to American morale. Hmm. Interesting. George, you have a response on that? Yeah, I I, I wanted just to, that the British were suffering from uh, severe, you know, logistical challenges. And I think we, we don't want to, I think, leave that out of this. I mean, um, they could they could bring an army of 30,000 across the Atlantic. That was unprecedented. Uh, but then they had to supply that army of 30,000 once it got once it got into the, you know, the colonies. Um, I, and I, they also there was there was no doctrine for opposed amphibious landings. That's something the U.S. Marine Corps would develop in the 1930s and carry out in the 40s. The British didn't have that when they conducted expeditionary warfare. And this is true of the French or any of the other major maritime powers uh, at the time. They had to have a secure uh, place to land their forces. And then once they did so, they needed uh, to draw forage uh, for their the, the horses that, that pulled their transport and their artillery. Uh, and that had to be found locally. They, they, they weren't uh, about to transport forage you know, hay and oats across the Atlantic. That would just be a far too uh, uh, ex expensive uh, to do. So they, they would find those things locally. And a lot of the, and the shelter for the troops uh, was found locally as well. And so they were bound to quarter their troops. And, and as John said, this was counterproductive to the, to the political aim that they were seeking, which is a reassert parliamentary authority over the population. Well, it's hard to do when you're banging on their doors in the middle of the night, you know, seeking shelter. Uh, but these were the logistical realities uh, that the army had to deal with. And, um, and so coming back to Boston may, maybe not have been as feasible as I suggested, may, maybe New York City. And that was the other thing they hoped is they would find loyalists. And, and this is really key too. The loyalists would provide them with the shelter and the forage and, and welcome them with open arms. And so they, throughout the war, the British always felt like we'll find the loyalists. And, and I think in 1776, they thought they would find them uh, in the New York City area. And then later in 77, they thought Philadelphia, that's where we'll find, you know, loyalists. And uh, they always, uh, I think, uh, misunderstood and, and underestimated the, 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 the extent of patriot feeling uh, in the American colonies. Interesting. Mark, what do you think? Uh, first of all, I mean, great comments uh, by both John and George. Uh, in fact, General Clinton is going to say, looking back at the war, that, hey, look, what, what was necessary to quell the rebellion using violence uh, was problematic because, yes, you were able to, to quell uh, the violent uprising. Uh, but even when you do so, you've lost the loyalty of the people because the methods you needed to use uh, naturally estranged Americans 
uh, from the Brits. The Brits. So you, you, that is the problem when you're doing counterinsurgency that too many good big powers forget. The other aspect is what John brought up is warfare is to gain leverage over your opponent so that when you come to negotiations, you come from a position of strength. Um, and when the Carlisle Commission goes and offers uh, the Americans everything they would have wanted in 1776 or five, um, they've lost leverage. So I, I look at today, and again, I'm the political scientist, so I'm looking at uh, you know its relevance to today. Think of the Doha Agreement uh, that Trump pushed through on Afghanistan. Uh, we came to the negotiating table, not as in a position of strength, but in a position of weakness. The adversary knew that. Um, and created a situation in which they wouldn't allow the Afghanis uh, to be uh, members of the negotiating team because they knew they came uh, from a position of strength, not the Americans. So in warfare, timing is everything. And if you're not able to gain leverage using the violent instrument, uh, then that instrument is the incorrect one to use. We talked about this last week as well with the the Spartans after Pylos, right? right? After a defeat, they go offer peace to the Athenians. Uh, John, what's... Uh... The, the British Army, uh, as George highlighted, has immense supply problems and quartering problems, but these are things that can be solved. You know, if you need your oats and hay, what you do is, uh, is you pay for it with gold sovereigns. And all of a sudden, you're going to find a lot of people who are going to say, I want to be part of your supply chain. Uh, because the Continental Congress is offering paper that's worthless uh whereas the brits are paying in gold uh in a hard currency with regard to quartering of troops <clears throat> uh there is a simple solution to that which is you build military camps around your cities new york philadelphia wherever you are uh and you live in log cabins you know it's not pleasant for the troops but they are not then quartered on the population George Washington commanded American army, but he did not quarter American troops in the houses of Americans. If you've ever gone to Valley Forge, for example, National Park, you will see recreations of the log cabins that were built that his troops lived in. Now, Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, then and now, is a very wealthy place. <laughs> uh, then it's farming, now it's high tech and shopping malls. Uh, but back then, he could have quartered his men uh, in farmhouses. Uh, but he didn't do that because he didn't want the American army to be seen as oppressing the American people. So again, the British had alternatives here. Now, it would have been uh, making it tougher on the German Hessian mercenaries and redcoats. But nonetheless, they would not have been quartered on the houses of American people. So the British have solutions here. By the way, the French army under Rochambeau, when it comes to the States, uh, Newport in 1780, his army is not quartered on the people of Newport. They build camps in Middletown, now Middletown, Rhode Island. And if you wanted to do business with the French army, you showed up and knocked on the door and said, hey, I have some forage here, or I have some food, or I have whatever, and the French would then pay cash for it. Uh, again, the French understood, like Washington did, that you do not quarter an army on the people. The British are doing this, and it is so counterproductive in uh, winning over 
uh, to the patriot cause, Americans, because it is seen as so oppressive. Again, this is an army being used to oppress people, as opposed to an army that is set apart from the people. So the British had alternatives, and there were models there. The French knew it, the Americans knew it, the British aren't getting it. And that undercuts any appeal of staying loyal to the crown. It's seen as an oppressive army. So, so since you since you went there, John, let's let's talk about the the shifting character of the war. And you mentioned the Battle of Saratoga. And now France is, you know, oh, let's the, this American thing. We we have a chance to get back at our uh, at our major rival here, the British. And the nature of the war now has changed for Great Britain. No longer are they simply trying to put down a rebellion of. Um, uh, you know uh, their own colony. Now they're facing their great power rival again. Um, so let's talk about you know now that the nature of the war has changed. Um, I, I put Alfred Thayer Mahan as my background this morning because uh, you know all of you, all of you mentioned him in uh, in your lectures and uh, and George, you talked about Mahan's concept of you know this annihilation versus exhaustion and what the British then should have done as soon as the nature of the war shifted how they should have used their navy and what they should have done. Are they um, savvy enough to understand this initially, or does it take them a while? What do you, George, we'll, we'll start with you on this one. Well, with, with Mahan looming over you, John, it looks a little bit like Big Brother. I don't want to say anything <laughs> contradict <laughs> Mahan's theory, but no, I think, I think I, Mahan generally, I believe, navies win wars by seeking out the enemy's main fleet and destroying it. So I think uh, uh, if Mahan uh, had ever, uh, well, if he had, you know, if, if Delbruck, who came up with this idea of, of battles of annihilation, and Mahan had met, uh, they would probably have agreed on that. Um, uh, but Mahan did point out that there was another naval policy. And that was the policy of, uh, of uh, neutralizing uh, an, an opposing fleet, an, an, an enemy fleet, by seizing its bases of operation uh, in a theater of war. And that would involve a lot of uh, marine actions, landings. Um, and I think to some extent, uh, that's after the French entered the war, uh, that's what both the French and the British navies were, were following that type of strategic script of trying to seize bases of operation in the Caribbean, which was uh, where, where all the valuable real estate really was. And, uh, you know, seizing the real estate itself, but also some islands mattered more because they were, they were capable of uh, providing support to the fleet. Um, so I think that was, that was uh, to some extent also the British strategy on land. Um, I, I, I think that the, the cities, uh, you know, these were, you know, 30,000 people, I think, live in New York City. So it, it's more of a, of a town, I guess. But the, the towns of the American colonies had value and they were important. And the British were seeking for loyalists and, and, uh, and they needed the, you know, they needed to control these, these enclaves of towns uh, and from where they would then gradually extend their control uh, into the countryside. Where most of the uh, where their population lit, resided, um, so it was a kind of uh, war of posts, or a, a kind of, a, a, that was a term used at the time, or uh, a strategy of exhaustion, where where they hoped to deprive the Americans of the things they needed. Let's remember, Washington's army suffered terribly 
uh, at Jockey Hollow and uh, Morristown and and at Valley Forge. And if you've ever gone to any of those national parks, I mean, you know, you'll 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 be told these stories of how they they had to make do with uh, very little firewood and the shelter was was terrible. And so, uh, well, Washington probably had a better grasp, no doubt, of the you know, the political impact of quartering troops on, on the population, uh, his army suffered uh, as a result. Uh, I don't know if the British and their calculus were willing to undergo that. So they were seeking these enclaves, uh, first as a base of operations and then as a way to extend uh, control over the countryside. Um, I, I don't know what, I mean, they certainly had other alternatives. I mean, they could have gone after Washington's army and I think, you know, the, there were some generals like Clinton uh, who who wanted to do that. You know, and I think that's you know worth discussing. Mm-hmm. So, John, you've been you've been uh, doing a deep dive into Alfred Thayer Mahan now for for decades, um, and and he's writing his recommendations about what Britain should have done. What a hundred years after after what happens is is it um, does he truly understand their challenges in terms of? Uh, uh, a war with the French Navy, or is he is he looking at it, you know, very kind of myopically? He, um, uh, on balance, Mahan, I think, is offering uh, solid prescriptions for what the British should have done. And when you look at the record, what you see is that the British understood it as well in their own time. So while Mahan is certainly projecting back and being the Monday morning quarterback, it's also the case that British leaders at the time understood the problem and that they needed to deter France from coming into the war. And one thing that they didn't do was that they had an inadequate buildup of their naval power before the war. If they had, they would have had a better chance of deterring the French from coming into the war. While the British are pulsing forward a large force to North America, they're not undertaking a sufficiently large naval buildup in this early stage of the war. Uh, They needed more naval power, more naval forces than what they had. And that was recognized by some. Uh, The First Lord of the Admiralty Sandwich recognized it. Uh, But at the same time, it's a question of money. And it was thought that, well, should we spend uh, the extra money, which would have been a great deal of money, by the way, to build up the fleet uh, to deter the French and also to be able to impose a blockade, a more effective blockade on the American colonies. And until France came into the war, the British weren't willing to spend that money. As, as a consequence, they can't deter the French. After the uh, defeat of the British army at Saratoga, the French see an opportunity and hence in March of 1778, they recognize the American Republic. And at that point, British con- the British consider that a tantamount to a declaration of war, and so they go to war against France. Um, if they had scored an early big naval victory over the French main fleet coming out of the main French port of Brest, and there was an opportunity at the Battle of Ushant in 1778, uh, maybe that would have been a major turning point in the war. Mahan thought it would have been, uh, that the British could have dominated the seas more. Uh, but that didn't happen. And so the French are putting out a very competitive Navy and then are joined by the Spanish in 1779. And the British are very much in the hurt locker at that point, because how do you prosecute a war in North America that you're finding it very difficult to break the will of the American people? 
and at the same time you're dealing with great power adversaries this is no longer a war between a superpower and a rebellion it is now a great power war as well and um, even britain wealthy britain the leading uh, world power if you will of the time is going to have a hard time fighting these two wars simultaneously and and emerging victorious so uh french intervention is uh is a big turning point in this uh in this war mm-hmm. so interesting to talk about naval theory and mark i know you're sitting there wanting to throw in some cool poli side terms like tension between rationality and irrationality so i want to give you a chance to to, to do that <laughs> Uh, I hate that you know me so well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and George can speak to this better than I can. Uh, the essential irrationality of the French getting involved in this war uh, to the extent that uh, they're going to go bankrupt helping the Americans. Um, and, and, and I completely agree with John's analysis of Mahan. I think Mahan gave some very good points. But let's put this in perspective. Uh, one, the ability to blockade the French out of Brest is problematic even with a great navy because they have problem uh navies have during that period of time have a problem sustaining themselves uh because of scurvy and other things so it's very difficult for a navy to to have a long-term blockade and then the french have to be cooperative adversaries you know they have to want to engage in a major uh fleet on fleet uh battle and you know that's not necessarily in the french interest doesn't mean that the french wouldn't have done that it just means it wasn't in their interest to do so at that point. Also, um, as um, Corbett is going to emphasize, war is won on land because people live on land. So while it would have been a significant option for the Brits to try to go after the French and make them bleed for helping the Americans, um, they still have to, even with a great fleet, have to divide their fleet if the French get involved. Um, so whether or not a great fleet would have deterred the French, I think it would have, it could have definitely done so, but it is not the ultimate answer uh, to the problem. Uh, the Americans still would have fought, probably not as well, and they would have probably have to have protracted the conflict even more. Um, but that doesn't, you can't resolve a major insurrection in one of your colonies simply doing it on the maritime domain. It's very difficult to do so. So it's almost like the British at this point have two diff- separate wars they're fighting, uh, really three, because they're fighting two naval wars, one against France, one against um, uh, Spain, and then they're fighting the rebellion uh, in the American colonies. And it's an interesting chain of events that lead us to Yorktown. You know, if the Battle of the Chesapeake Capes doesn't happen and the and the French, because of winds and, and whatnot, get there first and are able to engage the, um, the British fleet and, you know... Uh, tactical draw but strategic victory Yorktown probably doesn't happen Cornwallis is is you know he's able to if he if he is able to be resupplied then it could be a different war um George what's your what's your sense on uh, on this this chain of events that lead us to Yorktown um yeah I mean if I if I may I'll, I'd like to just uh take on something that Mark said too before Please, I get to go Yorktown. ahead <laughs> I, I think you know it's it's uh it's interesting. I mean, uh, the question of uh, had the British maintained a larger fleet uh, after the Seven Years' War, which then would have served to deter France 
um, from, um, you know, possibly, you know, from helping the Americans when they were rebelling against Britain. And, but that, remember, that would have cost a lot of money itself. And remember, that's what led to the taxes in the first place was maintaining this empire. And it, and it also led to the centralization uh, efforts of the British to control the American colonies. But even Jamaica and Ireland were experiencing uh, you know, these British policies in a negative way. So, I, I mean, the cost was leading to these policies. It was the Navy. It was, it was, it's the Navy, stupid. And, and by the way, though, it was the Navy that made them wealthy to begin with. So... Uh, it's kind of a conundrum uh, for Britain, um, and, and then also for France. I mean, they they had they had the option of doing what we're doing in Ukraine now, right? Uh, which is a kind of what the French call guerre couverte, which is you you covertly support the other side, but you don't uh, do it. You don't want to raise your support to the level where uh, it, it it leads to an open war because you're not ready for that. You don't desire that. So if the British Navy had been larger than the French Navy, I still think the French would have, you know, found ways to aid and assist the rebellion against uh, their arch rival uh, Britain. Um, now, to, to just on the, there are so many what ifs. If Rodney hadn't been, uh, if he hadn't fallen ill uh, at St. Eustatius and if he hadn't been delayed by counting the loot there that they had plundered from the Dutch, uh, he, and you know his fleet might have been enough to deter De Grasse from even sailing north uh, to the Chesapeake. Then he fell ill, and he had, and so uh, there's there's no one really to command for a while that uh, squadron in the Caribbean. De Grasse, uh, he didn't need to bring the entire fleet. He wasn't instructed uh, to bring all of the ships. So if he had left some ships, if he had divided his force, if he had showed up the Chesapeake with fewer ships than the British had. Uh, so there's so many um, contingent uh, contingencies here. Uh, it could easily have gone the other way. Uh, all the British needed was a, a squadron with greater firepower uh, in the Battle of the Virginia Capes. Uh, if Washington had, if Rochambeau had been enabled to convince Washington uh, to, to, to take this army uh, to the Chesapeake and instead uh, they had decided to carry out an operation on New York City, uh, then there again, there would not have been a Yorktown. Things just happened to fall in place in the right way at precisely the right moment. Uh, and it was the last year, I think, the last campaign uh, in which the British, I mean, which the French and the Americans could work together because in Europe, Europeans were trying to avert a general war, which, which they believed was on the horizon. Uh, involving all of the great powers. And so Prussia uh, was proposing uh, to divide America. Uh, Canada would go to France, uh, the northern and middle colonies would become independent states, uh, and the southern colonies would go to Britain. And uh, with all of that diplomatic pressure uh, on Britain, that might have been the fate of America, but uh, Vergen decided one more year and and uh, and that that was the year of uh, Yorktown. So, hmm. interesting, John. Any uh, any thoughts on that with the Yorktown campaign and the chain of events? Well, again, with regard to the buildup of the British fleet before the war, you don't have to do it right after the Seven Years' War. You have to do it from the period of seventeen seventy five six, when the rebellion starts. Uh, and and again, 
the British knew that they should be building up more naval power, even if France doesn't come in, that they're going to need a larger navy to institute a blockade to wage economic exhaustion against the colonies to cut off its trade. Um, so you have to build up your navy. They recognize it as, as such, and they made a mistake by not doing enough. With regard to the French being a cooperative adversary, one of the things that I think is really very striking is that the main French fleet at Brest in 1778 sails out into the channel and is brought to battle by the main British fleet at the Battle of Ushant. If the British had clobbered that French fleet and destroyed it the way that Nelson destroyed the French-Spanish fleet at Trafalgar in 1805, the war takes a much different turn. And that's what Mahan highlights, that if Admiral Keppel, the commander of the British fleet, had been more aggressive, uh, there was a chance for a big victory there. By the way, Mahan highlights that the French fleet at Ushant and the British fleet at Ushant resemble a great deal the two fleets that fought at Trafalgar in 1805. So the French were being a cooperative adversary by coming out. In fact, to me, I, I think, why the heck would they do such a thing? Well, they're doing it in part because they want to get a squadron across the Atlantic from the Mediterranean and they want to draw the British attention to the channel. But uh, uh, this potentially was a major mistake on the part of the French. Keppel, by the way, is severely criticized for not being aggressive enough against this French fleet. So as George said, there are opportunities here for the British uh, and that I think Mahan's critique, while it might seem that, okay, it requires that you win a big battle and winning big battles is hard, uh, take all that for, uh, as being the case. Nonetheless, there were opportunities here uh, for, the, for the British to exercise more dominance of the maritime commons. Now, by exercising that dominance, it's not going to win the war for you. But it will take you one step further, closer to being able to defeat this rebellion, because then you don't have a Yorktown. Uh, the British won't have to worry about Cornwallis being trapped because they control the sea lanes. Uh, you can also institute uh, a, a, a greater economic blockade on the Americans. Uh, one final note about the economic blockade. In the War of 1812, the British send a much larger naval force over to blockade the American coastline. Uh, the result is that American trade takes a big hit in that uh, war, so much so that the New, uh, New England uh, states, they're hurting and they have this, remember the, from our history books, the Hartford Convention, where they talk about seceding from the Union because the economic hurt is so great. So uh, again, there are ways that Britain could do more here. By the way, with regard to interdicting French trade, a lot of that trade, that arms, supplies, money, and all the rest is coming on Dutch bottoms, on Dutch ships. Uh, and what the British could do is actually provoke a war against the Dutch, which is what they do uh, eventually, and close down a lot of that trade. Uh, so, so again, there are options here that Mahan is highlighting uh, for the British. Now, whether it wins the war, I, I, again, Mark, I think, is right on target here, which is to say you still have a rest of population that no matter how much you control the seas, winning back the loyalty of the American people to the crown is going to be very hard to do. Mm -hmm. So, um, following along with that, you know, in this concept of how how you, how do you put down a rebellion if you're a if you're a great power? Um, we'll shift to the contemporary realm a little bit. Mark, you mentioned Afghanistan and how um, 
you know, uh, offering peace. Uh, and at the start of this, we also talked about, you know, these implacable revolutionaries, the Adams brothers, right? The United States in Afghanistan, uh, what, what lessons could we, should we have learned from our own uh, rebellion against Great Britain in terms of, you know, what to do differently? Yeah, that's a good question. It was the Adams cousins. I think John was a second cousin of Sam's. Um, but you're right. Um, I, it's amazing how a country like the United States starts out as an insurgency uh, and then fails so abysmally uh, when it's fighting insurgencies abroad. Uh, and I think one of the, the, the key lessons are that know your enemy and know yourself, know the enemy's value of the object, that the Taliban were on death ground and they were gonna to continue to come back, that in war, the result is really final. And when the value of the object is so high for the Taliban, and as it declines over the years for the Americans, we find ourselves in a situation uh, somewhat akin to the British, where global responsibilities begin to to take precedence over a particular theater of operation. Uh, so the Americans were wise to pull out of Afghanistan uh, because of the looming threat of great power rivalry, just like the Brits were wise to pull out of the, United, of the Americas uh, to contend with the French and Spanish and the European continent issues and the global context of their empire. Uh, so it's amazing to me that we simply cannot understand that insurgents are difficult to defeat and that you must defeat them politically. It's a war for the allegiance of the people. But, and when you're an outside power, aiding an indigenous government that is corrupt, that is inefficient, um, whose heart really isn't in it uh, to the end, like the insurgents, uh, then you've got to be able to reevaluate. And that's the final lesson, or not the final lesson, but the other big lesson, is the Brits do a very good job of reassessing and adapting throughout the war. It's just that they don't do as well of reassessing and adapting as the Americans do. The Americans are a flatter organization. They're more creative. They're fighting on their home turf, so they have better intel, better knowledge of the topography. Well, that if you flip that, it's precisely what the insurgents in Afghanistan were. Um, and again, it's the, I think it's the hubris of great powers that we can go in there and we can do what we do best. We can put down a rebellion by violence. Um, and we can do it so quickly uh, because we're so overwhelmingly more powerful. Well, that's the case, but it's not the only aspect to warfare. And we never recognize and we always underestimate our enemy, just like the British did in the Americas. Mm. Yeah, it also brings up the question too, how do you, how do you leave in a way that, that saves face, right? How do you conduct war termination that um, uh, that isn't a, uh, you know, uh, abysmal failure? And, um, you know, watching how Afghanistan played out in on the headlines was uh, was pretty painful to watch as a, as a, as someone who served there. And I don't know how that could have gone better, but one of the reasons why I, you know, wanted to do these talks was kind of as a catharsis to, <laughs> to figure that out or, or, or whatnot. George, well, we can get the, into the discussion of how we could have done it better when we did the case study. Yeah, that, that's, true. that's <laughs> true. George, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to drive home the point Mark made, uh, you know, about the use of force. Uh, and in this period, in, in the in the late uh, 18th century, uh, 
it was not it, it, the most insurgencies in the 18th century ended with some sort of negotiation, some sort of political compromise. And I think just un, that underscores uh, what uh, the counterinsurgency theorist David Galula uh, said, uh, and that is, you know, he's, he's, he's known for this, I believe, that 80 uh, percent of the solution to an insurgency is political. It's going to be political. You're going to have to find leaders that you can talk with and work with and make compromises with. And then 20% of it's the use of force as a, as a, as an encouragement to sit down and talk, right? So you need both, but it, but the balance is far more on the political side. And in, uh, and in the case of France later, they had an insurgency at home. Uh, during the revolution, after a republic was established, uh, it implemented a very anti-clerical uh, policy where church lands were seized across France and priests had to take an oath of allegiance to the government to be uh, come, uh, effectively uh, government uh, employees. Right. And so this this uh, a lot of priests said, no, I, you know, I'm an employee of the Pope and and not the government of France. And there were uprisings in Western France and the French Republic sent uh, uh, with what were known at the time as hell columns that burned and, and uh, villages and, and rounded up people. And there were just mass killings. I mean, it was, it was horrific. Uh, but the, it didn't end the rebellion. What, what when the rebellion ended is when the Republic uh, found a, a general named Hoche, uh, and Hoche went into the western part of France, and he implemented a much more population-centric uh, counterinsurgency effort where, uh, you know, he used force, but where he also uh, found leaders that he could work with on the other side and compromise and, and eventually uh, uh, regain control of, of uh, western France. So uh, I, I think there's something to the theory that we have now for dealing with insurgencies, I, I think you can turn to this case study and others in the past and, and see evidence of, of, uh, of, of success in dealing with, with insurgencies that way. Mm -hmm. Interesting. John, any, uh, any thoughts? Uh, yes. Uh, one is that um, if you look at one of our major theorists, Clausewitz, he has a remarkable chapter in On War uh about the people in arms and under what circumstances is an insurgency likely to be successful and he talks about several factors one of which is that the country should be large in geographic scope he mentions geography being an important factor and also that the people be warlike that somehow they be up to the rigors of fighting against a conventional army uh and what you see is in north america uh, the model that Clausewitz puts forward in that chapter, you see it uh, in North America. Uh, the 13 colonies are big, and uh, even with 50,000 troops pulsed forward, trying to control all of this from Canada all the way down to Florida, uh, you don't have the troops to, to, to do that. So uh, right away, geograph the geography of North America makes it tough for the British to, to win this war. In addition, the American people are warlike. Not only do they have a political consciousness of self-government that Mark and George have talked about, but they're also reasonably well-armed in the sense that 
there are 200,000 uh, Americans who are uh, have weapons who are in militias. So even if you somehow destroy Washington's army, you have to somehow disarm or neutralize these militias. Uh, that's going to be very hard to do. Uh, and indeed, uh, the militias often get a bad rap uh, because they're not conventional forces, but they do win battles <laughs> uh, or inflict heavy losses on the British, like at Bunker Hill. And of course, Saratoga is pretty much a, a militia swamping Burgoyne's army. So uh, these militias, uh, they, can, they can draw blood <laughs> uh, and they're going to be hard to beat. So uh, uh, in many ways, North America is hard to win, just like in Afghanistan, you see some of the same problems that Clausewitz talks about. You know, the Taliban are motivated to fight. They're reasonably well-armed. It can do damage. And in this country that's difficult to, because of its size and mountain terrain and the rest is just hard to somehow uh, pacify. And I, I think Mark's point is very important too, uh, which is you have to find as the outsider, right away, you're going to have hostility directed towards you because people are going to say, why are you here? You're not one of us. You look, you're, you're different from us in some way. Why are you here? That you're almost from the get-go going to be looked at as an outside oppressor. Uh, and so you better have somebody local that you can turn to that is effective. And effective means being able to govern uh, and it also means being able to deploy military forces that will fight. If you can't get an effective local government to fight on your behalf, if you have to take over most of the fighting, well, then you have, have, have a problem. And of course, in North America, the loyalists that we've talked about already are marginalized to such a degree, uh, they've lost the loyalty of the American people. And as a consequence, uh, after this war, many loyalists uh, hot-footed up to Canada because they no longer feel welcome in the American colony. So Mark's point, I think, is very important, which is that uh, as an outside power, you better have local forces that are effective, that can govern a country and also are willing to fight and die for that government. And if you don't have that, if you don't have that, maybe you better start thinking about how do you get out of such a fight, uh, cut your losses as much as you can. Mm, sage advice. Um, as we draw to the end here, let's go to final wrap-up comments. So uh, key takeaways of the American Revolution. If you had one big idea that you'd want everyone to, to know about it, what would it be? George, we'll start with you. I would, I, for me, I, I think what stands out is uh, the importance of external assistance for an insurgency. Uh, for a rebellion, revolution, uh, and uh, I, 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 I tend to believe that without the support of uh, France, but also the Dutch, uh, you know, the first year of the war, most of, like, 90% of the the muskets that were used by the Americans were, were Dutch, or, or actually Belgian, but they had been exported through, through Dutch ports. But, uh, uh, and Antwerp too, uh, uh, which under the, the port of Antwerp will experience an economic boom during the American Revolution. But particularly France, I mean, they were sending armed convoys over. I mean, the the army that won the Battle of Saratoga was eighty percent equipped with French weapons and uniforms, and and uh, so I think that uh, for 
for an insurgency to succeed, eventually they, they need, an insurgency side needs that, um, that external support. Interesting. Thank you. Mark. I'm not going to shock you by this, but um, I think one of the great takeaways is you need radicals, you need rival <laughs> rousers to start the insurgency. Uh, people who are well ahead of the curve, like Ad- Adams, uh, Cousins, and others in Boston. Uh, and you also need thugs uh, to uh, enforce the change. Uh, the, the reason why the rebellion starts in Boston is you have both. Um, if Adams doesn't recruit the, the longshoremen in the Boston area uh, to enforce some of the uh, elements of uh, the Sons of Liberty, uh, then it doesn't galvanize. Because the whole point of a rebellion is you want to elicit destructive interaction where the government is overreacting uh, and using, you know, coming down with an iron fist very early on, which will alienate uh the people and in order to do that you can't just use you know elegant uh language that works for many people but you also need that element that distorts and creates anarchy um and makes it more difficult to govern and then the reflection the reflexive response from the governments to come down hard that creates a cycle that is destructive for the establishment and al- allows the um, the rebellion to, you know, to, to grow. It's the fertilizer of rebellion. <laughs> Thugs. Awesome. Is that what I was as your teaching partner, Mark? Is that how? <laughs> yeah, you're definitely the fertilizer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Good deal. John, final, final thoughts. I I like the thoughts of George, which is how important outside powers can be in fueling uh, insurgencies and what he said earlier about how the West supporting Ukraine, just how important that is. And will we continue to support them in the long haul? Uh, You know, Putin banking now, I suppose, on hoping that the West grows tired of this uh, and that the West becomes divided and uh, doesn't support Ukraine as much as it has so far. Uh, I also like Mark's uh, uh, argument, too, about how important a vanguard party is of revolutionary leaders, that you need them to galvanize, to jumpstart uh, a revolution. I, I think the one thing I would add in here uh, is uh, just how important strategic leadership is. And in particular, we haven't mentioned his name much, but Washington is a remarkable leader. Uh, he loses almost every battle, but wins the war. He has a very good sense of what is required to win this war, both the importance of the French intervention, but also, as Mark said, understanding that uh, the fire of revolution uh, uh, requires people who are articulate in making, uh, arguing for why you had to fight. Uh, as an operational tactical leader, again, Washington loses battles. But he, he understands he has to keep his army around, survive, and at some point transition uh, from defense to offense. That what's going to be required to bake, break the British will to fight is to encircle and destroy uh, British armies that are in enclaves along the coastline. While he might have wanted to make it New York be the example, eventually had a compromise and settle on Yorktown. Nonetheless, he knew what was required to break the British will to fight. So uh, I think uh, we have to look at Washington as a strategic leader. And 
if the other side has leaders of such caliber, uh, and today, I, I mean, what's remarkable about Ukraine, of course, is Zelensky, just how he has stepped up. Now, he's a political leader as opposed to a military leader. Uh, but nonetheless, how important leadership is at the political and military levels to bring about success in war. And so Washington is a, a remarkable figure to look at. And one of the, in our case study on the War of American Independence, he is highlighted as a strategic leader to learn how he adapted and uh, but still had a game plan that he knew would be successful if he could execute. Outstanding. Thank you. All right, gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. This was a very interesting and engaging discussion on our Profiles and Strategy uh, virtual S&P talks. We will, thank you, uh, John. We'll end it there, and we'll see everybody next time. Thank you. Thanks, John. Thank you, John.